It's arrested development. Annyeong, welcome to our Made a Huge Mistake and Arrested Development podcast. I am your host, Darren. Today, I'm joined by one returning guest and one debuting guest. Here we are at the penultimate episode, and we have a brand new guest. First of all, I'll introduce the returning guest, Zach Powers, returning from episode 203, which I think was Amigos. Yeah, it was. It was definitely Amigos, which is a personal favorite episode of mine. So I was glad to be able to do that one. And on that, you were with your uh, your um, one of your two co-hosting partners. Yes. Should I say? Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, Brian Flynn from the Revisionist podcast was the guest on that one. And this time you have your other podcasting partner. That's correct. Uh, yeah. That's primarily <laughs> what I am. <laughs> debuting guest. Shannon Camp, hello Shannon. Hi, it's pretty exciting to be debuting on uh, another fine star in the Darren Husted galaxy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You may have previously heard me on every other show he's ever done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I'll also, as mentioned, I do Stage of Fools with Zach. Uh, Today we're going to be covering uh, the penultimate episode of the show as it was aired on Fox, which is... Uh, season 3, episode 12, Exit Strategy, broadcast, of course, as the third of four episodes on Friday the 10th of February 2006. Obviously, Fox wanted to give uh, Arrested Development as much as a chance as they could on the way out, um, giving it such a prime spot on a Friday in February. This episode was written by Mitch Hurwitz and Jim Vallali, and it was the directing debut of Rebecca E. Asher, who had previously served as the script supervisor on 40 episodes of Arrested Development. Uh, she later was the script supervisor for MTV's Undressed for a couple of seasons. If either of you recall that show. It has a script? <laughs> yes. I actually, I think it was like 50-50. I think it was half improvised and half scripted. I'm not entirely um, sure I'm familiar with that program at all. Oh, you should look into it. it I thought it was it a reality was show where people got naked and then dated each other. <laughs> Well. There were a number of kind of famous actors who made their debuts on that show. Oh, then um, I was completely wrong. They weren't naked in the woods trying to date each other? <laughs> no. Not I think naked you're thinking in, of a different uh, show. Like a Naked and Afraid I think I'm combining several new shows here. <laughs> naked and... I was going to say Naked and Aroused, but that just sounds horrible. <laughs> uh, she was also the script supervisor for Donnie Darko and uh, hey. Anchorman. We just went to a screening of Donnie Darko for the 15th anniversary. Uh, she was also the script supervisor for season four of Mad Men um, before she moved into directing. And since then, she's directed a number of uh, different sitcoms, primarily for ABC at first with Don't Trust the Bee and Happy Endings, uh, Family Tools. Um, Trophy Wife, uh, The Neighbours, which was created by the guy who wrote uh, Stupid Crazy Love and also has now got uh, This Is Us on the air. It's Crazy Stupid Love, Um, but I like Stupid Crazy 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 Love love better. Wasn't (laughs) The Neighbours the name of that show that Tommy Wiseau tried to do? No, this is an earlier version about some aliens living in... I remember uh, the super animation. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Um, and also, more recently, uh, Manhattan Love Story, uh, Marry Me, Blackish, grandfathered um, a couple of episodes of the, the, the new show, American Housewife, some Brooklyn Nine-Nine, an episode of Trial and Error. Uh, so we're coming right up to recent stuff. One of the more recent episodes of Angie Tribeca and uh, the bulk of the most recent season of Grace and Frankie. So wow. she sounds like a very much a journeyman. Yeah. I'm I'm legitimately impressed. I think uh, I was probably the only person 
uh, besides my lovely roommate Jane, who would completely freak out hearing someone worked at on uh, Don't Trust the Bee, which is such an underrated, undervalued show. That's a good example of a show that really got screwed over by its own title. Yes, and also the fact that ABC aired it completely out of order. Out of order. Yeah, <laughs> it's just to a point where it made absolutely no sense if you were watching it to week to week. I think Netflix actually has it up out of order because Jane and I have had to go online to look up the correct episode order so we can like stitch it together for ourselves but i don't think that show gets enough credit for being probably one of the best examples of celebrity making fun of themselves in a way that's actually really fun and interesting with uh james vanderbeek playing himself although he has kind of parlayed that into a like a second act himself so yeah uh you know it did him wonders. uh vanderbeekasons <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you can do that to the English language, Shannon. It's worth noting that uh, Rebecca Asher was the daughter of William Asher and uh, Elizabeth Montgomery, uh, best known as... Uh, I can't remember her name now on Bewitched. The, Samantha? Uh, the lead character. Samantha, that's it. How could I forget that? Yes, Samantha on Bewitched. Uh, that was her mother. Um, so Now, everyone, even though podcasting is an audio medium, wiggle your noses right now in tribute. <laughs> I can't uh, do it. So hit. It's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I just wiggled I my mouth. <laughs> yeah, you just go. You end up moving your mouth. Yeah. Obviously, it was just a talent that Elizabeth Montgomery possessed. Um, anyway, let me give you the summary as it was on NPR's site. Um, Job goes to Iraq to perform his Christian magic act on the USO tour and ends up incarcerated. Michael learns that George Senior sent Job to Iraq to burn down the model home he built there. So Buster and Michael fly to Iraq to spring their brother from prison. I've got to say, I've never picked up on the whole going to burn the house down part of that that plot uh i'm not quite sure where npr are getting that from um, um it is in this episode yeah they yeah. mention it it's uh, talked about but uh i don't know to be fair on the whole i am less familiar with the episodes of season three than one and two and even less familiar with season four but so it, a lot of the details of, of season three episodes tend to skip my mind more so than season one or two. I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but I thought it was almost strange how rushed the reveal that uh, George Sr. is actually a patsy for the U.S. government as he's been claiming all along, yeah. even though the show has treated that as like a complete lie. They do like a not even 10 second moment where the CIA is like, we got some guy to build houses for us in Iraq. And then it's just completely moving on. But I yeah. mean, Arrested Development isn't necessarily about those plot machinations, but I wouldn't uh, blame anyone who missed out on either that or the fact that George was trying to get Job to burn the house I down just because it flies by. I will say this about the reveal that he's a patsy. The joke kind of works in that all this effort to bringing down George Sr. could have been avoided or not even begun if these two people who worked directly next to each other for cia east and yeah, west had just funny. talked to each other <laughs> yeah i mean it was it yeah. was definitely funny i'm just saying if anyone had missed out on like the tangibles of the whole conspiracy plot line uh that wouldn't surprise me too much yeah um well let's get into the episode then um we, we start with michael uh deposing his sister um uh the, you know the trial that obviously uh, michael it's funny actually because in the in the kind of previous episode with the whole you know uh, judge reinhold stuff they they did like the kind of um the kind of dry run of of the court and michael had this thing with um you know wayne jarvis approached him and wanted him to betray his family and stuff and they talked about going to a grand jury so i kind of figured that the whole kind of courtroom thing was done with but they still keep going with it for some reason uh, just like 
Only briefly, though, really. Only kind of like at the start of this episode, there's like a little bit. It's kind of the motivation for, you know, the title of the episode, which is Exit Strategy, which is everybody is trying to get out of going to court. So they're all coming up with different schemes. And um, obviously... And the show the is co- like, we're being cancelled. We got to exit strategy all the plot lines that yeah. we dropped out. I think out. that's yeah. why everything feels a little more rushed in this episode, yeah. realistically, is they're like, oh, we only have two episodes to wrap this up. We've got to cram in as much as... This feels... I mean, I mean, it's a funny episode and it actually has one particular joke that I'll wait till we get to it that I think about all the time. Like, since I first watched this show when I was 13, I've been thinking about this one joke... But um, it oh, I should ask like... actually, Shannon. I forgot to ask. Um, did you watch the show when it was on, um, or you know, did you come to it later? No, I think um, I came to it later in two thousand three when it aired. I would have only been like eleven years old, so I was kind of just tiptoeing into like adult sitcoms. I think the first ones I watched were like Malcolm in the Middle and the U.S. version of The Office. But one of the very first things that my brother and I started having sent to us when we got our Netflix disc subscription in the early aughts, which we thought was the coolest thing ever, getting DVDs sent to your house. There's no way this could be any better. Um, We would get discs of Arrested Development. And I remember the first time we got some of it, we ended up like rewatching every episode on those discs as many times as we could before my mom sent it back to like the Netflix headquarters because it was like total love at first sight for both of us. And I think it has probably shaped my sense of humor more than maybe any other show, at least uh, at that super early age. So I did not watch it when it aired, but I watched it pretty shortly after. I would say I watched it shortly after its cancellation was when I got into the first season. Michael and Lindsay are are preparing. We find out that Lindsay, the previous night before... As part of a storyline where Lindsay and Tobias had made a date to have sex a week later, which turned into three months, which turned into four months, which is basically kind of is never going to happen. Basically, we all, we all kind of know it's never going to happen. Um, Tobias has decided that, you know, to to have sex with Lindsay, he needs to be drunk. So he basically finished a whole bottle of Cloudmere or didn't even finish a bottle of Cloudmere. He only had a tiny bit and he basically fell asleep. And uh, of course, Lindsay finished the bottle because... It's vodka. It goes bad once it's opened, um, which is one of many lies that we'll find out that Lucille has been telling to her children about alcohol um, throughout this episode. Hasn't um, that been kind of a running gag throughout the show? Wine only turns into alcohol if it's opened is uh, another line earlier in the series. No, I, this is all. This is basically this one episode. Really? That this joke. Mm-hmm. I, I found that. Yeah. I'm surprised. I thought that it all came. Uh, I thought it had been kind of sprinkled throughout. The vodka going bad joke is a joke that I think about semi-consistently. I'll say that about this episode for sure. I'm going to hold on to the joke that has stuck in my mind until we get to it because it's not necessarily one that I think is very well remembered. Yeah, of course, Michael points out another of uh, Lucille's lies, which is I'll sacrifice anything for my children, which doesn't sound like something Lucille would ever actually say. Um, you know, and we've known she since has the pilot. said things like "I love all my children equally," so she is prone to making grand proclamations that yeah. are wildly untrue. That's usually followed by a smash cut to "I don't care about Joe." Yeah. Though. So, <laughs> so there's at least one that she doesn't love as equally as the others. We get this really weird little running gag here. I wouldn't even call this a plot because it's just like a kind of background thing with Tobias, where he talks about how he's got a call to from the prosecution. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
and, and he thinks it's a CBS procedural, which is just such like a... It is kind of like the kind of title that a CBS procedural would have had in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, it's like impossibly least... generic. <laughs> yeah. And I like how when Michael kind of talks about the, you know, what they're doing to Tobias, where he says, These guys will bend the law to enforce the law. He says it in such a dramatic way that Tobias just goes, Tell me that's not a CBS franchise. <laughs> And I gotta say, um, it's definitely worth noting that in this scene, Tobias is wearing a woman's suit jacket that is extremely fitted and like <laughs> tailored for a woman's body over his clothes. It has a really wide V, it has really big shoulder pads, and the button is actually a bow that clasps it. And um, it's really great, like they don't ever... Do they ever even address it? They do. I think he said yeah, it. they do. Because maybe they call it out. Oh, he yeah. says he maybe says, looking for her jacket. And... He's like, I wonder if they make this in a woman's. They only make it in a woman's. <laughs> yeah, it's Ron Howard, but it's just like such a powerful sight gag. The moment he comes on screen, um, and I was thinking about this a little bit. I think I've seen all of the actors who are in the core cast, maybe with the exception of Portia de Rossi. I've seen them in a lot of things since Arrested Development ended, and I have kept up with David Cross's career. He... Wait, you mean you watched the squeakquel? No, I didn't watch that. <laughs> but I mean, like, I enjoy his stand-up comedy, and I've read his book and other things like that. For me, even though, I mean, all the performers are talented, no one quite disappears into the role the way David Cross mm. disappears into Tobias because like even though I've seen him in so many other things and like I'm familiar with his personality when he is on screen as Tobias Funke like I don't have anything in the back of my brain that's like that's an actor playing a role like he <laughs> it's just such a mark of what an iconic character Tobias is I guess that he just like is so I don't even know how to say what I'm trying to say. So fully realized? Some of this sounds good diss to the other characters, which is not my intention, but mm. like <laughs> that like guilelessness and that optimism that Tobias has is so wildly separate from David Cross, whereas like a character like Joe played by Will Arnett is like a pretty standard Will Arnett role. Yeah, and because you know, he plays sort of smarmy. Jason Bateman is kind of doing his Jason Bateman thing with Michael, same with Michael Sierra and George Michael Bluth. Um, and there's and just something about Tobias Tony Hale, otherworldly. Uh, Tony Hale's character on Veep has some similarities to Buster as well. Yeah, with the sweetness. I mean, not that anyone's not pulling their weight i just that's to me kind of strikes me as one of the reasons why tobias is perhaps the most remembered character from this show like he takes yeah. on a life of his own like anytime he's on screen it's almost hard to watch anyone else like that gag coming up where he's like oh these hollywood sets are always so incredibly elaborate and even <laughs> though the scene keeps going on in front of him in the background just watching him slowly open empty cabinets cabinets as if he's like looking at plates and stuff is hysterical i will say um obviously jessica walter's character on archer might as well be the exact same character yeah. but jeffrey tambor at the very least i haven't seen much of transparent but i can't imagine that character has any similarities to george senior no. and lots of the actors on this show have have great range um i just think it's kind yeah. of fun to note how different from david cross tobias is kind and of compared to some of the other pairings kingsley from the larry david show i don't know or a larry sanders show if you've ever seen that pretty different character hey from now. george senior too hey yeah. now hank kingsley yeah hey now hank <laughs> and <laughs> even oscar and george senior you know he's already doing a dual That's role true. on yeah. uh, arrested development uh, yeah the the, the the whole thing where he says those hollywood productions are so detailed and he just starts opening empty cupboards 
is like such a weird kind right. of joke. Yeah, specifically, it's, so meta. it's like it's so metatextual. <laughs> the point where. Uh, specifically Michael Sarah looking for a snack and there's the one nature bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just such a it's such a weird joke that the show would make of like saying uh, kind of almost like pointing out that it's a sitcom at this point and being like look say, it does nothing in the background. It's it's like really weird. I think this would be weirder if it were happening earlier in the show's run, but since kind of part of the joke of this episode is like we're being canceled, let's call this episode exit <laughs> strategy because we're like packing this up i think that it was the perfect moment to have a joke like this where you could be like like basically look at how we're being abandoned with no money and like (laughs) our the facade of fiction that we ask you to suspend your disbelief for is falling apart so you no longer have to suspend your disbelief and it's kind of nice um spoilers for towards the end of the episode it's kind of also a nice reminder that like it is a show because if at this point you still thought that George Michael and maybe were blood relatives, it would be disturbing that they hooked up with each other. So it's nice to have that little extra reminder like, <laughs> these are actors. None of them are related to each other, even if they are playing a family. And of course, um, speaking of maybe, George Michael enters talking about how maybe's been feeling kind of left out of the family lately, uh, which is a kind of meta reference to the fact that kind of after season two, they really couldn't find anything for Alia Shawcat to do. There was a, still a little a bit of the studio stuff. There was still a little bit of the kind of studio stuff, but they didn't really kind of kind of get anything for her character new to do in season three. Which is really, um, I really think as I'm watching it now, I'm realizing what a shame that is even more than when I watched it the first time because I do like maybe as a character, but even more than that, Aaliyah Shawcat is the most underrated member of this cast. She is so funny and she has impeccable comedic timing and I've seen her in quite a few comedic things since this show and I really think that she is a very talented performer. And, uh, she's got on to do some drama, like uh, Green Room, which I'm sure you didn't see, but she's quite good in, in Green Room as well. We know you saw it, Darren. He's talking to me because I'm a big baby. <laughs> and I haven't yeah. seen it. I, I just love her delivery when she goes... Would a killer to let some vodka go bad? Yeah. Like, I just like how the lies from Lucille she's are so kind of filtering weary. down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, yeah, um, I like how a lot of times maybe kind of we'll have like a common sense take on a situation, but her common sense is founded on facts that are completely fictional because <laughs> all the adults in her life have fed her so many lies and half-truths and misinformation. Like, uh, would it kill her to let some vodka go bad? Like, in a world where vodka only turns into alcohol if it goes bad, then maybe's point actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Um, and I think it's funny as well that like when Lindsay talks, you know, like uh, George Michael tells Lindsay about, you know, her birthday and she goes, our little girl's turning 14. And it's like she doesn't even know how old her child is. And of course, as <laughs> as George Michael says, sometimes shame can be fun. Um, Job enters saying, how does he know about her? There's a lot of kind of kind of pronoun playing in this well, yeah, particular scene. Well, yeah, they actually, that's a repeat of as George Michael enters, someone says shame and he's like, oh, you guys were talking about, like there is some joke where he's ashamed of his He says for secrets. He goes, yeah, secrets. oh yeah, talking about secrets. And then he goes, no, no, I changed the subject. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, that's it. He's like, 
Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. But yeah, as Joe wonders, when they say shame, he's like, how did you know about her? Which, of course, in its way is a stealth her joke as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Job, of course, <laughs> when he asks, did someone say that Job should be ashamed of himself? Michael's like, no, but give it a little while. Somebody will. <laughs> um, which which is the start of kind of this episode is, you know, one of the episodes that has kind of the, the interplay between the, the brothers. Yeah, um, you know, it was and... a treat to see all three of them together because a lot of times we'll have a Michael and Job plot, which I really, really enjoy. I love the running gag that mm. um, Job says Michael is an emotionless robot because he doesn't have like <laughs> these hysterical breakdowns the way that the other members of the family do. But it was really fun yeah. to get to see Buster be included for that for like the first time since the only other big three brothers plot line I can think of is like the boy fights. Yeah, I mean, there was a there's a lot. Le- there's a little bit of it t- in the final episode with um, with Marta 2.0. There was oh, a bit the love, Joe, love triangle love where they square, they yeah. started kind of fighting amongst themselves. Of course, Marta doesn't even know who. Yeah, that's Buster boy is. fights. It's the that's the same episode where they show the home videos that Joe used, that George Senior used no, to make of them fighting. Right? Boy boy fights is in season three. That's okay. season one. Well, it um, was boys but, fighting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Something that they, they have a tendency to do quite a lot, obviously. And I like how in this exchange, Job keeps detailing his plans for his uh, Christian magic act, um, where he's going to go out of town to Iraq. And Michael keeps saying to him, no, you're not over and over again. He just keeps saying, yes, I am. And it's really funny how he doesn't seem to be hearing what uh, what Michael is actually saying. And he just keeps contradicting him and just keeps planning out all of his stuff. Um, but I like when he gets to the whole wine into water and Michael points out that he's got it the wrong way around. It's really funny too because water into wine is actually one of the easiest magic tricks. You have like a colored powder in the bottom of the glass and then when you pour the water in it like changes color the way that Kool-Aid or lemonade would. So he's basically made the trick way, way, way more difficult than it needed to be and well, he's done it incorrectly. Here's Shannon calling out Jesus. As a as a bad magician. <laughs> Charlatan. No. Thankfully, my Catholic grandmother doesn't listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. And that's also why they threw you out the alliance, Shannon, because you just keep giving these tricks away. Um, so, <laughs> of course, this also sets up something for later on in the episode where Job says that he's emptied all the wine bottles in the house and filled them with fake stuff. He doesn't How am I supposed to sleep what... with my husband now? <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is such a great line because... It kind of, Job wouldn't know the context for that because he's missed the entire first half of that conversation. And of course, we find out that uh, George Sr. is behind this, and <laughs> Job just says, uh, and he won't bump me up to business class, which I, I love that that's the kind of complaint that Job has about going to Iraq, which at the time was, you know, quite a dangerous country to be in. Nothing turns Job into a whiny child more than having to deal with his father. Like, whenever George Sr. is in the picture, Job is an even more incoherent baby than usual. Like, he cannot handle even the slightest disapproval or boundaries from um, George Sr., where it doesn't seem to bother him as much with uh, Lucille. Yeah. That's probably why she doesn't care for Joe. Um, <laughs> of course, um, <laughs> I like as well how Tobias is going to what he believes to be an audition. So he says he's going to trot out a vagina monologue or something else I know. Something I um, know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I... And then, of course, when we cut to Tobias meeting with Wayne Jarvis and Joe, uh, he finishes by saying, flower in my garden. A mystery in my panties. <laughs> Wayne Jarvis has to emphasize that this is not an audition for a CBS show. Well, I was just looking for some feedback. Yeah, which is such a great kind of like Tobias realizes like he's 
basically doing the wrong thing. This almost calls back to like the second or third episode where he was doing the fire sale and he misinterpreted the fire part of that sale. It's also a very Um, passive aggressive actor thing, like in acting class or another situation like that to perform something and then be like, well, I'm just looking for feedback because it's an unfinished product. (laughs) So it was like perfectly fitting for his character. And then Wayne Jarvis does give him some feedback on it, which I really enjoy. Yeah. And I love Tobias's reaction where he says, well, I'll tell you what else is contrived. The odds that I would turn on my family for somebody who is not only trying to hurt them, but who wouldn't know good acting if it marched through that door and gave them headshots and decorative soap. Yeah, Um, it's pretty heavily implied, I think. And he's kind of in some regard done this in the past that if the feedback had been positive, he would have turned on them pretty quickly. Yeah, he's as selfish as the rest of them. I don't think the show makes much of an effort to hide that. Even Mrs. Featherbottom was pretty (laughs) self-serving. Yes, although she did get Lindsay's delicates, uh, you know, clean. So uh, that was something. Um, And of course, we then see the the scrapbooking bait, which is <laughs> this kind of like poster on the wall. I don't even, Tobias, while waiting for the elevator, he just kind of sees it and uh, takes like one of the, the things off the flyer. And I like how Wayne Jarvis says that he took the bait. And uh, Cho, I think his first line ever, he's been in like four episodes of Tanem. This is the first time this actor's been allowed to speak. And he says, He's a classic scrapbooker. And I like how Wayne Jarvis <laughs> kind of do- double downs on the punchline by saying, Right down to the woman's suit. Which kind of makes the kind of setup of him being in the wrong suit like even better because they kind of paid off twice. There is a stand-up comedian, and I want to say it might be David Cross, who has a chapter in his book about staying at a hotel at the same time as a scrapbooking convention. And now I think <laughs> it actually might be David Cross in his book, I Drink for a Reason. Wow. Cut this out in case I can't verify that. But it would be so <laughs> funny if that were the case. Yeah, David Cross has a few interesting tie-ins to the show. Not to get into it, I'm sure you've covered it in depth, but his relationship to... Uh, the actor's studio guy, he made fun of him relentlessly in his stand-up prior to recording <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Arrested Development. Yeah. I feel like, uh, what's his name? James Lipton? 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 I feel yeah. like James Lipton actually has a really good sense of humor about himself, though, in part based on yeah. his arc on Arrested Development, which is definitely making fun of him. The whole Warden Gentles thing is endlessly amusing. I love uh, that whole thing, yeah. He's great. <laughs> He's fantastic. But already been covered, I suppose. Yeah, just had got to throw that out there. <laughs> George Senior, for the millionth time, he says he's a patsy. Um, and he's trying to find a way to get out where, you know, Buster <laughs> has apparently taken coma. As if this is like an option of things that you do. Um, in the previous episode... Legal uh, things, as they specify many yeah, times. Legal yeah. reasons. <laughs> yes. You know, Lindsay and Lucille are going to rehab, apparently. Uh, of course, they don't actually end up in rehab. Well, they're bringing um, a corkscrew to rehab. <laughs> well, yes. Um, and of course, this is where Lindsay says, wine only turns into alcohol if you let it sit. But I like how Michael kind of looks at Lucille and he's like, how do you come up with these? <laughs> like, um, obviously, you know, she she must have said so many over the years. <laughs> and I like how George Sr., says that the constant bickering is going to put him in a coma, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and they all look at him like, we know exactly what you're trying to do. Yeah, even Michael is like, nice try, Dad. And we get to a kind of odd subplot here where obviously uh, Buster has fallen in love with his nurse, who was his co-star in a thoroughly polite dust-up in a previous incarnation. Um, And (laughs) I like how we find out that Lucille, in an attempt to get him out of the coma has been letting people experiment on him. And, you know, first of all, he has someone trying to do injections and they've hit his tendon. And you see Buster kind of like 
keeping his face and just not moving despite being jabbed in the tendon. And the doctor is like, no, no, it's fine. He'd be screaming by now. And he's like, oh. Well, this is the start of kind of just a running gag for this episode where he's like, that's okay, try again. And then we get the uh, cosmetologists, um, you know, injecting collagen. And they're like, no, that's okay, try again. And then we get um, at-risk male youths. Um, who would have previously, I guess, gone into the army, but are training to be dentists. And uh, one of them has his arm on his windpipe at one point, and the other one is drilling into his teeth and clearly not hitting what he's meant to be hitting. Because <laughs> he, he, he once more also gets the tray again. Um, and I like how, <laughs> as the narrator, Ron Howard is like, It really was amazing for their self-esteem. Even Buster was moved, and you see a single <laughs> tear of joy rolling down Buster's cheek. I mean, yeah. I want to briefly well, return... I think it's implied to be a tear of absolute pain. Pain. I, <laughs> I think the narrator is omnipotent, and the narrator is always correct. So if he says that Buster was moved, then Buster was moved. Uh, I guess we could debate as to whether the tear came from that <laughs> or from pain. But I was going to say, to briefly return to the cosmetology thing... They give him, like, really plump, bright pink <laughs> lips, which look hysterical with his yeah. blank face. They put on, like, sparkly green eyeshadow and really noticeable fake eyelashes. And they have the exact same face of makeup on Buster's unconscious body later when Lucille poses with him in his army uniform in a coma. <laughs> He's wearing his full army uniform and the full face of cosmetology makeup. And it's like a blink and you miss a gag, but it it, it is so great. Yeah, I think that is the final appearance of uh, the Balboa Bay window magazine as well. But that's such a great looking cover as well. <laughs> such a great final appearance for it. I mean, it couldn't have gone out on a higher note. <laughs> and this is where we get the return of people yelling faker, um, which Lucille had been yelling into uh, Buster's face to try and get him to come out of the coma in the previous episode. And Adelaide has fallen in love with Buster, mostly due to his kind of like, um, the fact that he doesn't move or say anything. Um, been there, right, ladies? <laughs> and she wants him to speak. And of course he does. And that's when she slaps him on the face and says faker. Um, and then, of course, he reveals he was only in a coma, you know, to uh, not testify, which, of course, um, you know, this makes him a coward. And I love this weird little kind of like set of jokes here where we find out that people fake for uh, Adelaide like all the time. Um, and, you know, first of all, someone else comes out of a coma um, and, you know, we find out where Adelaide says, uh, how could I let this happen again? And then she says to uh, Gary... Uh, take a single step to show me your love, Gary. And he does take a single step and she screams faker and runs off and the narrator has to correct her and say, She was wrong on that one. It was love that made Gary take that step. Yeah, he's like on those physical therapy poles, like those ramps with poles. And she actually, after she has faker, she slaps him in the face and he falls to the ground, like obviously barely able to keep himself <laughs> up. So it's it's pretty good. Yeah, I'm confused. I, I mean, obviously, this is a character who's very drawn to people in an unfortunate or disadvantaged situation. So <laughs> she also claims to be attracted to bravery. And I kind of enjoy later when she says that uh, George Sr. falling into a coma is very brave. <laughs> he fell into a coma as soon as the taxi pulled up to the hospital. And she's like, oh, you brave man. And it's so weird. <laughs> Yeah, she's obviously attracted to a very specific type, as are most of the characters on this show. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I just I just kind of I kind of love that Adelaide gets this little kind of like one minute of finding out that this is her entire life is constantly being attracted to people who uh, basically can't talk back to her. Um, and, you know, Buster, as he gets out of bed, he falls on the floor straight away. Some great physical comedy from Tony Hale because, of course, you know, his muscles have atrophied a little bit because he's been faking a coma for three weeks. And he's amazing with physical comedy, too. Like, if anyone has been watching the latest season of Veep, I will not spoil anything, but there's a lot of him climbing on and off of things <laughs> and trying to attack someone while still buckled into a car. So I uh, highly recommend checking that out for Tony Hale as Gary, if for no other reason. We find out here that, um, uh, you know, Lucille Bluth and Lindsay Fionke are not checking into Shady Pines. Itself a callback to a season two episode. Uh, of course, Shady Pines is where they filmed Sugarfoot. I'm sure you both remember the theme tune to Sugarfoot. I remember um, them singing it on Arrested <laughs> Sugarfoot. Um, I love when they show that it's not Lindsay and Lucille really checking into Shady Pines by showing Lucille's maid and her daughter being caught on the security camera. And her yes. daughter is wearing the iconic red slut uh, tank top from early in the series. I got a huge kick out of that. Yes, which of course carries the theme of um, the hand-me-downs that... Uh, that Lupe gets from sure. the blues. Yeah, um, I suppose as well. that's true. So it's, it's a yeah, double joke for you. Sense. It's a great joke. Like that's kind of the genius of Arrested Development is how everything makes sense when you fit it into the bigger picture for the most part. And I like how he, he, he figures out that Buster is not in a coma because he's made 15 phone calls to radio stations, <laughs> alternately requesting I will survive. And Cho says, she's out of my life. <laughs> And then Wayne Jarvis repeats it. I just really enjoy the way he goes, what was the other one? And Joe's like, she's out of my life. She's out of my life. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a great kind of like um, attack on on like uh, Lucille, but via radio requests that she'll probably never hear. Oh, I thought he was trying to get Adelaide back. And that's why um, he was doing like breakup songs. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know when the calls were made because he, he didn't kind of come out of his coma until the last few minutes and then he fell on the floor. So I don't know. I just thought, I thought it was, I thought it was supposed to be like heartbreak over Adelaide, but to me, it seemed like an attack on Lucille because she's been torturing him. Either way. The... She's out of my yeah. life. Certainly sounds like a, a slight against Lucille, especially if Adelaide was still <laughs> fawning over him at the time. Well, then that's even funnier, actually, because uh, I love that somewhere deep, deep, deep down in his psyche, Buster understands that he needs to get away from Lucille. <laughs> but all the top layers of his psyche are not sending that message. <laughs> yeah. And we get one of my favorite kind of like um, sitcom -y kind of like uh, tropes kind of called out where they turn the TV on. Uh, and Wayne Jarvis is looking for something dramatic and he's like, you know, he's on the news right now and they turn the TV on and there's a newscast and it's not on the item that he wants it to be on. And I like how he has to go, I'm sure it's coming right up. They've been playing it all day. Yeah, <laughs> like... and then they have to sit through an ad break. <laughs> like, if I'm home alone and I fall down, I don't know what to do. Yeah, it's just... And of course... I like how Cho is like, why don't we just go online? And, you know, Wayne Jarvis very specifically says, call your Japanese jets. Uh, also a total is... sign of the times, because I feel like if the show were made even a couple years later, uh, everyone would just be getting their news online. I feel like this <laughs> yeah. happens right on the border of us really making the switch over to online as our primary news source. And this was kind of like the tail end of TV dominating yeah. that. 
Well, I mean, also, you know, it's made by Fox and they've they've leaned on the whole thing with Fox, yeah. kind of the local news quite a lot anyway. And <laughs> the newscaster, he teases the story by saying, um, why an insurgent from Orange, you know, an insurgent in Iraq from Orange County, California, why he's in jail and why he won't be coming home anytime soon. <laughs> so it's like a clickbait type headline yeah. to kind of tease the story. And I love how Wayne Jarvis goes, and imagine the impact if that had come on right when we turned on the TV. And the music sting that accompanies it is like so kind of perfect. Um, and of course, you know, this is where Michael makes a plan with Buster um, I don't think he's he's going to, you know, go to Iraq with Buster, but he just turns up to pick Buster up because obviously he's no longer in the coma. Um, and <laughs> I like how he goes, um, I'm not faking it, Michael. I really am this expressionless. <laughs> Which is kind of just such a... Yeah. And, and then, of course, you know, he. <laughs> I like how he frames it by saying, my love thinks I'm a coward just because I was using precious hospital resources to avoid my legal obligation. Which is, like, such a great way to frame it because it kind of... Um, you know, something that I think is kind of forgotten in the show a little bit is that these are very rich people who are very isolated for most of their lives. And it's only when they've lost their money in kind of the last couple of seasons that they've really been exposed to anything. So the fact that he expresses that like that, kind of, you know, that's what kind of rich people pretending to be in comas would be doing. But obviously, you know, I don't know how um, kind of common that is in the United States for people to be pretending to be in comas. Um, but I mean, yes. it's kind of a coming of age thing here in the States. <laughs> Who hasn't slipped into a fake coma? Back to the days of the Salem witch trials when old Betty Paris was laying still in her bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all essentially America is like days of our lives constantly. <laughs> honestly with this year's current events that's kind of how it feels (laughs) of course i like how michael goes that does say coward it's like it's like yeah she has a point basically um and obviously you know job is locked up in prison in iraq uh which michael has to then actually kind of reframe by saying that he's uh he's in a he's in a u.s run prison in iraq God knows um, what they're I, doing to him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which, which I, makes I, it even worse. Yes. Um, it's kind of a reference to like Abu Ghraib, I assume. But yeah. it's uh, earlier this week, uh, Shannon was talking about how she was watching 30 Rock with um, one of the younger folks that she nannies for. And um, how it was kind of a lot of Bush references that she had to explain to him. And during, while we were watching well, this... Well, uh, Jack Donaghy dates Condoleezza Rice for the entire first season. Well, there's a Condoleezza Rice reference <laughs> in this episode. Yeah, Condoleezza Rice way. But uh, yeah, I have to imagine, uh, and I mentioned this at the time, this show has to be even more inscrutably tied up with George W. Bush references. Yeah, to a 12-year-old who was born in 2002, yeah, this part would be completely unintelligible. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's funny actually because obviously they've you know they've made reference to Abu Ghraib explicitly with Amy Poehler playing sure. Job's wife, um, literally recreating, literally recreating the Lindy English, Lindy English pose, um, <laughs> which I think seems in bad taste, but it was funny in the show anyway. So obviously you know they've they've kind of had Abu Ghraib as a kind of punchline before now, and you know Michael talking to his son is like you know he he's. <laughs> his his mom and Lindsay are in rehab. He can't get hold of dad, and he's got to fly to Iraq to get Job. Um, and this is where Buster volunteers to come along because he speaks the language. And of course, he clears his throat. And I like how when Buster explains it, he goes, "I was just clearing my throat." 
But I think it actually does mean laundry, but like a child's laundry. We don't really have a word for it. It's such a weird kind of tangent he goes on for a few seconds. This is the joke that I have been thinking about for the past 10 years. I'm not even kidding. Like, uh, a laundry, but like a child's laundry. We don't really have a word for it. Maybe in part because I do do children's laundry as a nanny and I think of it often. But when I have actually used that as an example before, when talking about foreign languages, like, it's like a word. We don't really have a word for it. It's like laundry, but like a child's <laughs> laundry. And a lot of times I'll just say that and people will just take me seriously not catching the Arrested Development joke. It's not a very well-known joke. Even people who have probably seen the show will be like, oh, oh yeah, I guess you're right. You know, da, da, da. It's just, in part, it's very funny because the idea of needing a word for child's laundry is kind of absurd, but also it's a very good joke because there are so many words in other languages that we just have no direct translation for. So I just think it's such a great joke. Yeah, and I think as well, of course, this is setting up a few gags that pay off with the whole, you know, um, Buster speaks Arabic and... And so, obviously, that's that sets up a few jokes later on in the episode anyway. The first of which I will say I think is probably one of the hackiest jokes the show's ever done. Uh, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, but, uh, yeah, so obviously Buster has his uniform from the photo shoot. Um, you know, because he... Uh, <laughs> because, obviously, Balboa Bay Windows has some kind of... Hmm. I don't know, it's such a weird... I don't understand this magazine at all. Because, you know, like, who would be interested in kind of an article about a comatose boy? I mean... A I comatose know. soldier, though. A comatose well, uh, soldier. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. In America, comatose soldiers, People Magazine is going to make a meal <laughs> out of that for six months. Especially since they have like a recurring segment on Lucille and Buster, apparently. This is the newest dramatic twist. I mean, we were talking about Days of Our Lives earlier. Somebody going into a coma is a big twist. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it just seems odd to me. I just don't understand the target audience for that magazine because they seem to be very into like Lucille kind of... Astero. Yeah, 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 it does seem like it is just a magazine made for Lucille, basically. I wouldn't, I mean, I, I guess if they had time to go into it, they would probably reveal at one point that she probably funded the whole enterprise just to kind of like lift Buster's spirits or something. Um, George Michael, of course, is, is planning a surprise party for Maybe's 16th birthday, uh, and he keeps trying to get people to commit to it, and, um, you know, he's finding it very, very hard uh, to get people to commit to, to this surprise party. He hasn't got a commitment from basically anybody at this point, uh, which will lead him to do something which uh, in the in the finale is kind of one of the, the kind of bigger plots. Um, and um, <laughs> I like as well when, you know, George Michael says, be careful. And Michael says, who's tougher than us? And he throws the keys <laughs> and George Michael turns his back and they like bounce off him, which of course is something he did you know, way back um, at the start of the season. Anytime Michael tried to throw a ball, he would turn his back and sort of <laughs> let it hit him on the on his cowering back. Yeah, um, but I just kind of like that that weird little callback to the fact that obviously as Bluth boys, they, they are not the most athletic. Um, well, at least one of them isn't. Uh, and of course, you know, the, 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 the depositions have been delayed and we find here the appearance of... Uh, Richard Belzer. He had previously actually made a small cameo in Save Our Bluths a couple of episodes ago, uh, but he is here uh, folding the Arrested Development world into the world of Dick Wolf um, mm -hmm. as he appears as Detective Munch, although he, 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 he styles himself Professor Munch for the scrapbooking class. Yeah. And interestingly enough, as part of the whole Belzer universe, you also have X-Files and The Wire. Um, so 
Now, the if you if when next time you watch The Wire, think of the fact that the Blues exist on the West Coast within the world of The Wire. Simultaneous, being released simultaneously, as <laughs> yes. Stringer Bell and Omar Little are living in the drug, yeah, talk about streets talk of about Baltimore. Opposites. Um, yes. But yeah, uh, also uh, ties into the very popular, I will not go into it, but the Tommy Westfall theory. I think a lot of that relies yes. on Richard Belzer playing Munch in various shows. A chunk of it does. Some of it relies on TV writers just getting bored at some point during a season and just sticking a reference in there. Yeah. Um, now, this, the narrator tells, tells us that the scrapbooking sting has helped the DA gather evidence on Ken Lay... Uh, and Oliver North, Oliver North, which is, we just got a letter from Ronald Reagan saying thanks for all the secret kind of stuff. And, and they say, but ironically, not Martha Stewart. And it's really weird because this far on, it's kind of hard to remember the fact that Martha Stewart went to prison for six months for kind of insider trading. Uh, so that is a very kind of like dated reference. Wow. Um, I remembered and I loved it. Her scrapbook says, up yours, <laughs> G-Men, which I really, really enjoyed. <laughs> Yeah, and I love how Munch finishes by saying photocopies are not admissible as memories, which is such a great kind of line. Also, um, it's very clear that all the other students in the scrapbooking class are people who work for the prosecution or, like, for the state's office. Yeah. Like, they're dressed in, like, lawyerly attire and are making no effort to hide the fact that they're like either lawyers or police officers so it's of course tobias is blissfully unaware <laughs> and i like as well how when he talks about how he has to go to the family storage unit unit in reseda <laughs> detective munch says no problem we can arrange for a helicopter to take you there right now and <laughs> tobias just responds by saying wow this is the best free scrapbooking class i've ever taken Lindsay and lucille are actually in a spa uh, but it's also a spa that has no alcohol <laughs> <laughs> so they picked the wrong spa to go to basically unless uh, and it's rehab get... that does not exist no, yeah that's probably true <laughs> yeah uh and we get a little bit of a, a shout out here where Lindsay says grow up uh, sorry lucille says to Lindsay, grow up you're 40 years old and Lindsay goes 35 and of course that is a, a little bit of a spoiler for the next episode well it works um, perfectly because if you don't know what's coming then it's just like a joke that kind of plays into the fact that Lindsay has no idea how old maybe her own daughter is. But, yeah. of course, as we'll learn in the upcoming episode, Lucille has she... the facts correct. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, of course she does, because she's quite obviously sober at this particular point. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is a rarity for Lucille. I actually thought she couldn't... She functioned better on alcohol and drugs than off them. Like, when mm. she went off her... Uh, what was it? Prenatal medication postpartum depression medication yeah. <laughs> and it's like yeah. 30 hours off medication <laughs> they they take uh michael and buster go out of the hospital of course and as they're leaving um you know adelaide comes up to uh to buster um and he says he's going to iraq to save his brother and of course you know this means that she thinks he's brave after all uh and he's such a pussy um uh, to which Michael has to say, that means she likes you. Um, <laughs> the show bleeping it, of course, to keep it in continuity with, uh, you know, Charlie's Theron's appearance earlier in the season. Also American television. Yeah. I guess. I mean, actually, on the episode where, uh, on Not A Pussy, where Adelaide made her debut, they bleeped it a few times and they didn't bleep it other times. Mm. So, 
I don't know. It's interesting because it's, it's not a word. I mean, until again, until this year, <laughs> it's not a word we heard on TV a lot. But then all of a sudden, things changed. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and now we get this kind of exchange where Buster keeps saying he's going to do this, and then Adelaide says, "Don't go," and so he says, "No, I'm going to stay." And then she says that he's a coward, and then he says, "Well, I'm going to go to forget you." And as it goes through all this, Michael just intervenes and says, I'm going to save everybody a lot of trouble and say we're going. Which is kind of the perfect kind of like Michael line because he kind of gets tired of other people's kind of like uh, tediousness very quickly. And he's just like, I can't be bothered with all this. Let's just get out of here. Although who is Michael to talk about anyone else's love interest after the whole, <laughs> not just the whole Marta fiasco, but then Rita and Maggie Lizer. I mean, Michael hasn't exactly been lucky in love himself. I'm sorry, Michael, your wife is dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's the expert on marriage. And I like how Buster says, when I miss your lips, I'll put a fig in my mouth and think of you. That was Which, really of course... Funny. Is a line from Love Indubitably, uh, but they've changed one letter in one word so it doesn't get bleeped. And then, of course, he goes, they have fix over there, right? <laughs> Which I like. I like how he's made this declaration without even realising it. Um, and of course, Especially because figs are such a Middle Eastern thing. Yeah. So like, yeah, of course <laughs> yeah. they have them. Literally. <laughs> Shows Buster's kind of, all these years of being a scholar have kind of not really sunk anything in. Um, and of course, well, this the is blue where... is the land, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is this is where George Senior turns up now in a coma, um, and this is where we get probably the hackiest joke, where the narrator tells everyone the Bluth boys found themselves in a strange land, and we see all these oil derricks, and we see kind of like a, a desert landscape, and Buster and the cab driver are shouting at each other in in Arabic. And Michael asks for a translation and Buster says, Instead of taking surface streets to LAX because the freeway's backed up all the way to Knott's Berry Farm. I'll give the slightest defense of... Yeah, you're right. This is a very kind of cliche, hacky joke. I'll give the slightest defense in that they do manage to subvert it later by doing the exact opposite. So at least yeah. they do something clever with this pretty tired premise of all the people who drive cabs don't speak English. I'm a comic in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> That should be your new act, just where you just say stuff like that and say, and I'm, say a her to burr, I'm a comic in the 80s. He's basically yeah. doing Tim Allen's That's act my, right now. <laughs> my getter done is going to be the shirts I sell are going to say, her to burr, I'm a comic in the 80s. Oh, you should definitely start selling those. Um, and we find out that George Michael, having basically nobody committing to this uh, party, he decides to invite all the guests from her address book, which she's been using as a head of a studio. Um, this includes both Brian Grazer and Ron Howard uh, are both listed along with Paris Hilton um, and, of course, Steve Holt. And it's funny because George Michael's like, ah, Steve probably doesn't need to be invited to this or something <laughs> along those lines. And he's maybe the one person George Michael could have contacted who would have actually been come to the party <laughs> yeah, or would have been an appropriate and choice. Wouldn't have ruined her career. I also like that Ron Howard has an excuse for not wanting to come to the party later on through <laughs> yeah. the narration. He says he didn't want to drive out to Orange County. It was nothing personal. <laughs> yeah, although he points out that he did invite Mickey Rourke. Uh, yeah, which I that feel, was really funny. <laughs> which I feel like pre the wrestler is a different type of joke. To I yeah, think but you know, there. this is another thing. He must have at least been in tabloids or something during that time because 
also in the early seasons of 30 Rock that aired very shortly after this, Jenna is making a bunch of jokes about Mickey Rourke trying to kill her on his boat. I think he just had a bit of a kind of reputation in because he just done that whole fighting thing where people rearranged his face to look how it currently looks, which is and a face I cannot stare at for more than a few seconds. Yeah. So. To be honest, I think at this time it was pre-wrestler and then there was the wrestler, which if we're going with this theme, there was a... Rorkazons and a little bit and then I think it kind of went back to what it was before for Mickey Rourke because he's not super popular anymore he's kind of receded again in terms of fame but I mean his popularity now is a different type of joke to the joke that's being made here which is mostly about I don't know kind of like the reputation he had at the time and we get a little kind of stylistic nod to Alias uh, which is a kind of weird little joke where it, it, you have the word Iraq and then it zooms in and we go through the queue. Um, and that is how Alias would always introduce the kind of diff- going to different countries type things. Ah, I it was did always not know with that. these. I didn't watch much Alias. <laughs> well, Alias has been referenced by Tobias where he talks about getting an Alias type show. And uh, of course, Buster said Alias is a spy. Uh, which is kind of like a really good kind of quote. But yeah, so that's just kind of like a weird little stylistic call out to, to the fact that they're going to Iraq. And also it's a bit of a meta joke on the fact that Alias was shot in California for the most part, which masked as all these different countries, supposedly that Sydney Bristow was going around the world to, but they're basically all backlots. All right, that makes sense. And um, <laughs> we get a really weird joke here where Buster's Arabic is rusty, and so they, instead of getting a cab, they hire the only rickshaw in Baghdad. Yeah, that's a very, it's a quick little throwaway thing. It's mostly just a visual. I mean, it's just a, they wanted to have a visual of the three of them piled in, onto a rickshaw, pretty much. But also, it's a call out to a character that we're about to meet, which is Gary Cole playing Richard Shaw. Um, the, the CIA agent or operative. Mm. Uh, so his name is also Rick Shaw. Uh, so I don't, I don't know why they did that joke, but yeah, it's just, it's just a weird little visual. I missed that Gary Cole was playing Rick Shaw, actually. I didn't... Uh... <laughs> yes. Oh, I didn't catch uh, that either. I gotta say, at first, I was so confused when Gary Cole showed up because I didn't remember that he was going to be the... Is it FBI or CIA? CIA, CIA agent? I CIA West, West yeah. I think, specifically. Yeah, um, because yeah. it seems like he's just going to be there for the gag about being like a taxi driver. And I was like, it's weird they had Gary Cole for just that one line. <laughs> but how naive and simple I was. Although I got a huge kick out of seeing future Veep co-stars Tony Hale and yeah. Gary Cole Actually, together. Actually, did... During the Maggie Lizer run, did Tony Hale and um, Julie Louis-Dreyfus have any scenes together, or were they completely separated the I entire time? I think they time? were completely no. separated the entire yeah, time. Yeah, the Maggie Lizer storyline didn't overlap with anything from the rest of the show. Mm. Um, I think because they had to shoot most of her scenes out of sequence to the rest of the cast. Mm. That um, would make sense, because she would have been locked into uh, the new adventures of old Christine during that time, I imagine. I think it was about a year before... Well, the first time she was on, she wasn't. But yet the second time when she returned, okay. yeah, she was on. So, um, And with Buster and Michael cramped in the back of this rickshaw, we get Operation Hot Brother. I'm um, not comfortable <laughs> with calling it that. <laughs> which is a callback to Operation Hot Mother. Um, and I like how I like how Buster thinks that all operations need to be hot. Like, that seems to be the only kind of modifier he has for the different operations. Yeah, and, you know, they, they get to the prison, where, which is being run by, you know, the Americans, um, and they are training Iraqis how to run a prison, which, of course, calls back to all the torture that was taking place on Buster, because 
they forget to run Michael and Buster through the metal detectors, and the you know the U.S. soldier says that's okay. Try again, uh, which I think is kind of telling of the kind of attitude that the uh, the American soldiers had while they were in Iraq. I like the the reuniting here of the brothers where. Well, actually, I think we've skipped over it entirely, but the reason Job is in prison is because his magic act got a little bit kind of away from him, and he wanted to do the burning bush trick, which turned into a crowd of people chanting, burn bush, uh, burning an effigy of George Bush. Uh, so Job kind of, uh, when he reunites with Michael, I like how Michael doesn't cry at all, and of course Job says, Should I say robot? Yeah. Um, it's is... like maybe you don't have enough RAM to process this, <laughs> Michael. Uh, this is one of the scenes that's on the season three DVD. When you put in the season three DVD, it kind of keeps popping up. So I, I love this because because this is kind of like a great reveal. Um, and obviously, I've seen this at least a thousand times. Where after he says the RAM line, he goes, "There's such a thing as brotherly love." And then the camera pulls back slightly. You see Buster and Job goes, "What's he doing here? I thought he was in a coma." Yeah. And the timing of Job saying those two things next to each other is so perfectly done. And of course, Will Arnett delivers that line, uh, you know, so perfectly. And when we see Job's street magic, we see that he says that Jesus is referred to the King of Kings. And then he's got a queen in his hand and he goes, the king of queens. Which is yeah. such a... <laughs> I don't know if that is a shout out to the Kevin James uh, I, I Lear want to Remini sitcom. that it is. Yeah. Jesus as like a delivery man who's married to a lady who's too hot for him, but his naggy is like, yeah, I want to believe that that's what they were purposely referencing. Although I think Jesus, it would be a much more even match in terms of attractiveness. I don't That's know if true, he's yeah. Got, he's got Based ripped in some of those. on the pictures I've seen, he's yeah. pretty hot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some of those depictions um, of, of the crucifixion, he's fairly ripped. Yeah. Kind of like oh, he's always ripped. Mm-hmm. Like, you Thank know. God my Catholic grandmother can't access podcasts. Good <laughs> Lord, we're really doing it up this episode, huh? I mean, he's also white in those, so how trustworthy are they? <laughs> Zach's taking a shot here at uh, the depictions of Christ. Such an odd tangent for you to go on here, Zach. Well, well he's known um, for being very religious. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, this is, of course, yes, you know, uh, Job does say that he was going to torch a couple of model homes, uh, but it goes by so quickly. Um, and I, I like how uh, Job goes to collect his things and say his goodbyes. Um, and I like how we, we get kind of like a, you know, Later on, we find out that they were trying to let Job escape, and he just wouldn't escape, <laughs> which is kind of one of the the, the weirder things that Job has done. Um, and you know, Michael, rather than going straight to the airport, they decide to go to check out the the house in, in Sadder City. Um, and um, <laughs> I like how when they're in the taxi with Gary Cole, uh, Job goes, "I forgot to say goodbye to Yusef." It's like he's only been in prison for like a few hours, and he's already made friends. Um, and I mean, that's the reason, basically, that he refuses to escape. He genuinely doesn't realize they're trying to make escape opportunities for him because he's yeah. too busy trying to, like, throw it in the face of the guard that they're not doing a good job. <laughs> like, he is, in every sense, like a teenage boy. Uh, and uh, this is where we get the joke where, of course, Buster clears his throat once more, or swallows a moth, should I say, yeah. and it sounds like Arabic. Uh, which itself is a bit of a hacky joke that 
kind of like you know Arabic languages just sound yeah. like people. Yeah, I don't know if that joke would go yeah. would happen today. I feel like that would get cut nowadays. <laughs> I feel like you could get away with it once. Like he makes a noise, and he's like, "Oh, it is a word for a child's laundry." Like that's the joke, obviously that should stay. Um, but the swallowing a moth one feels like a retread of the child's laundry joke. That's less funny and slightly more offensive. Even when they're uh, doing the um, the when he's speaking supposedly real Arabic, it's over the top in a way. He's like, that- yeah, they're like screaming at each other angrily, and then it turns out, oh, they were just talking about directions. Like, yeah, because yeah, Arabic yeah. always sounds so scary and angry. Sure. Of course, then they reveal that this guy speaks English, and this is where Richard Shaw says they took the Cheney Expressway because it was uh, all backed up to Halliburton Road, which is like such a kind of like 2004 <laughs> Bush era joke. Um, I got but, so uh, sick of Halliburton jokes over the years. Like, we get it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're a corrupt corporation who profited from war. Give us a rest. Come on, let's move on, people. Um, But yeah, so... um... (laughs) I just meant it was a very easy, like, button to a joke for a long time. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it's definitely like a Jay Leno joke, isn't it? You know, uh, just finish it off and just say the word Halliburton and that's it. That's, That's the end of your monologue. Uh, tell us who the guests are tonight, Jay. But yeah, so we end up here meeting one of many Saddams and in the most meta reference you're ever going to get in a tv show one of these guys i cannot point out which one was the soup nazi on seinfeld i know which one it was and earlier in the season when they had a picture of george senior with saddam he said i thought it was the soup nazi i asked for his autograph so this is like the most kind of like I it's it's such a meta joke That's it's crazy. <laughs> we we find all the Saddam lookalikes sharing a house, one of whom is pregnant, which is such a kind of. This was around the same time as I remember though. It was on the cover of Newsweek and stuff. There was a transgender man who still had a uterus and did carry an. Uh, baby to turn a baby yeah you think that's a reference to this i don't know if that happened that? before during or after this but i yeah. know it was something that got we it was before we had come to the understanding of um transgender issues that we even have now which is still incredibly incomplete as a society but i remember during the time of the quote-unquote uh pregnant man um yeah there were a lot I remember of the really story. uh not cool jokes. I don't think this one is super offensive, but I thought maybe it was a call to that because that ha- probably happened in a somewhat similar time frame. However, I don't remember exactly when. I will say that um, my favorite of the now dated political jokes, because possibly I think it's the most underplayed and casually delivered of all of them in this episode, where the other ones are fairly um apparent is the guy inviting them into the house full of lookalikes saying i'm behaving like an uday lookalike i do enjoy that one in particular out of all of them in this episode so i felt like i should call it out it's fun just to look at the model house too because it really does look like the california model house that the blues live in with like some fun um you know iraqi touches like on the counter they have like a spit roast right uh, the doors have like patterned screening in them instead of just plain glass. Like it's just like little tiny design touches, yeah. but um, 
especially because the model home set is so empty usually it's really fun to see it looking actually lived in and looking kind of like it actually has some sort of cultural flavor because the model home in california is so bland and like devoid of character and distinction in every way so uh it's it's definitely cool to see them i have to assume it was the same set that they just dressed oh a i'm bit sure differently. it was the same yeah. set yeah yeah it's the same set just from a slightly different angle and they have redressed it the funniest thing of course is when he says i'm behaving like an uh, an uday lookalike there is an entire film that is just about the person who was Uday's main lookalike. It's called like uh, the Devil's Imposter or something. The Devil's Double, yes, yeah. starring oh, Dominic yeah. Cooper. Starring that was, Dominic Cooper. That was gross who casting. Is, yeah, who is? He's white as <laughs> lit- Well, yes, he's very white as God's face, as Kumail Najimy would say. <laughs> but yeah, so um, a lot of that film has actually been disputed by people who knew Uday. Shocking. Uh, but f- from what we know, Uday is not a very nice. Namjiani. Out of the two, Uday is the the worst of uh, out of Uday and Kusei. Uh, not that apparently there was very much in it, but apparently Uday was known to just kill people, whereas Kusei would just torture them. So you know he was clearly the uh, the, very... the Job of the, uh, mm-hmm. the two. <laughs> but yeah, so I. I... I, it's funny because, you know, this, this leads to a joke later on in the episode, which is probably one of my favourite kind of callbacks of the season. Uh, but yeah, um, Ahmed is apparently watching the trial very closely. Uh, the implication being, of course, that Ahmed is actually Saddam Hussein um, and not merely a lookalike. Um, uh, but, you know, I like how, um, you know, Michael kind of getting, <laughs> deciding that he was going to fix the air conditioning for these guys leads to the kind of revelation um, in the secret room, uh, I like as well how it's delivered where the narrator says, and that's when Michael discovered the bombshell. And it is literally an actual bombshell. Yeah, <laughs> a like, shell of a bomb. It's such a weird kind of like kind of joke for them to do. But uh, <laughs> George Michael has called everybody in Maybe's address book, with the exception of Steve Holt, of course, telling them all that she's about to turn 16. And of course, this is where uh, Ron Howard says, And a lot of us just didn't want to drive down to Orange County. Which is such a great kind of line for him to say, Uh, especially as because obviously Ron Howard is not credited as a narrator. So if you're watching this show and you don't know that it's Ron Howard, that joke kind of seems a bit odd. Well, I was going to say, if you're watching the show and you don't know Ron Howard is narrating it, crawl towards the entrance of your cave and join society. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, because the thing is, Ron Howard has been a director now for, like, what, 35 years, something like that. He hasn't done that much acting, so I know he's got quite a distinctive voice, and if you know that he's the narrator and you know it's Ron Howard, a lot of jokes kind of make sense, but if you just hear in this voice and you don't really know what Ron Howard sounds like because you haven't seen him since, like, Happy Days, uh, then it is kind of a bit odd. You know, for this kind of. If you're watching Rest Development in the nursing home and you don't remember anything (laughs) but the little boy from Happy Days. Mm -hmm. Andy Griffith Show. Is that the child from the Andy Griffith Show? (laughs) (laughs) There's a reason why this show went out and it managed on its final and only had three million viewers. So obviously there was a very dwindling audience at this point. I will say, I think this is one example of how over season three, Ron Howard as the narrator kind of commentates on the situation in a more opinionated way and a less impartial way um i think it kind of has some to do with like this being exit strategy and they're kind of showing the seams of the show in the empty set dressing and the meta references uh ron howard starts to like note that he's ron howard as he narrates (laughs) the show this is 
yeah. one example of several where he will like have an opinion on the situation as no, opposed that, to just that's narrating. That's kind of been going on for a long time because in the Samantha Bauer storyline, she says something about Opie and he says that she had best watch her mouth. Yeah, no, it happens occasionally, but it happens in higher frequency the later you get into the sure. seasons. And of course, uh, you know, this is where the kids decide to get drunk so they can start acting like kids, yeah. I guess. This um, feels like on fake wine, though, so they're not actually <laughs> yeah. getting drunk. Well, this is it. Yeah. So it is, again, it's a kind of meta joke about the fact that they don't know it's fake wine. So, of course, they act drunk, which is, of course, what they are literally doing as actors. They are acting drunk. I doubt very much that Michael Sarah and Alia Shawkat were actually drunk. Uh, I hope they weren't, at least. Um, and once we get back to the nuclear warhead, Buster, of course, having been in the army, finally pays off. And he talks about the range capacity, um, you know, and how he's got kind of, you know, knowledge of this technology. And I like how when Job enters, he goes, my God, it makes me want to have an ice cream cone. Doesn't it make you want to have an ice cream cone? (laughs) It kind of makes me think of their father's love for ice cream sandwiches, that they would see what they believe is a nuclear warhead and be like, oh, I could really go for some ice cream. Well, that is what Richard Shaw says when he says you'll have plenty of time for ice cream in prison. Ice cream sandwiches. Oh, I didn't. I missed that. That's funny. I missed that this time. The other day, someone who's a friend of ours posted a picture of an ice cream sandwich, and I was like, "If you love ice cream sandwiches so much, why don't you marry, <laughs> why don't you marry it?" Marry but one? sadly, I don't think that you got it. <laughs> yeah, and of course, um, you know, Richard Shaw reveals that um, you know uh, that basically this was kind of like a setup to get them to come to Iraq. <laughs> Um, and we find out all the the escape attempts where uh, Job is like, you know, uh, you're the one who didn't shut the door. Come on. And he's like, he's like, as soon as you stop dropping your keys, come on. And then they had an honor marathon where Job just kind of doesn't escape and then just goes, come on. Um, which is, you know, kind of the last we'll kind of hear of that catchphrase. But I just like how they, he just didn't want to escape, you know. Um, and, I really think you know, he was too stupid to notice. I don't think it was even <laughs> yeah. that. Like, he has such an ego and he loves telling people that they're wrong or stupid or ugly or bad. It was more worth it to him to spend that time telling them the things they were doing wrong than actually observe what could have happened for him there. Uh, you know, of course, we get um, the revelation that this is not a, a you know, a WMD. Uh, <laughs> this turns out to be a home fill. Um, I which... love this. I love the <laughs> idea that the home fill brand like would have a catalog of empty products, including a WMD. And of course, you know, there's a recording device in there, which turns out to be, um, you know, a, a part of the CIA uh, West. Uh, and of course, he's part of the CIA East, so he didn't realize that they bugged that house. Now, the funny thing is, of course, all through this, Buster has been taking photographs that he's been sending to Adelaide, we, we suppose, uh, to show her how brave he's being whilst in Iraq. Um, and he kind of just does it as they're going along. He kind of like takes a picture of himself with one of the Saddams and then he takes a picture of the warhead accidentally. Um, and they kind of just they don't really set that up that much, but they pay it off quite quickly. Um, and when we see George Michael and uh, maybe getting drunk, George Michael details that, you know, she might not actually be related. Um, calling back to when Gangi described the fact that she'd spent her inheritance on the way here. 
um, which is a kind of a very cruel kind of thing to point out. Yeah, and he um, also says that Gangi said that they made her like in a petri dish or in a test tube or something like that. Yeah, I think it just speaks to how little the kids understand about, you know, where babies come from and IVF that they would think that just because maybe was you know. Uh, conceived in a non-traditional way means that she isn't still using Lindsay and Tobias's egg and sperm. Yeah. Yeah. Because also, it is partially I mean, a setup for a reveal in the next episode as well, but... Yeah, um, yeah. This is what George Michael wants, is for her to not be his cousin. <laughs> as detailed in a, a, a love letter he once wrote called If You Weren't If You my Weren't cousin. My Cousin. <laughs> um... And of course, uh, they go to second base, um, which in the next episode, a picture of Pete Rose. <laughs> Pete Rose makes a few appearances. We get back to Richard Shaw, and he reveals that, um, <laughs> that, that Judge Senior was an unintentional operations victim, uh, which is an interesting way to say Patsy. Uh, and then he reveals they did run the whole operation through a British building company. Of course, Rita has nothing to do with the British building company that they ran it through. That was just a whole separate kind of storyline that just happened. Um, and Richard Shaw says that it's a terrible, you know, it's their mistake, but he's going to have to take them out. And I like how Job goes, I could really go for some Italian. Um, and one of the Saddams point out that there is a, an olive garden in Mamoon. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Which obviously speaks to, you know, once the American troops were over there for a period of time, they decided to bring some stuff from America uh, to Iraq. Um and, of course, it takes one of the Saddams to say, I think he means he's going to shoot you in the head. Um, and then, of course, he asks him to look at the air conditioning again. This is where we find out that all the pictures that Buster has been taken have been sent to a friend. And Buster finally kind of, you know, plays a role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in helping save the brothers. Um, and <laughs> I, like, I like that Job lays out the demands by saying, we're going to need some business class tickets home. Direct flights. None of this stopping in Phoenix. I'd rather um, be dead in California than alive in Arizona. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Michael then adds, can we maybe drop some of the treason charges against my father? And I like how kind of Job's kind of like business class tickets is the first priority rather than that. And of course, Buster adds on top. And I do believe there was some mention of some ice cream, <laughs> which was not mentioned by Richard Shaw at all. It was just, you know, Job kind of um, kind of pumping it up. Um, and the narrator, of course, says, so with Operation Hot Brother a success, our American heroes left Iraq. Uh, and of course, this is where Buster says, take Condoleezza Rice Lane. It's quicker. And I really liked that image of the three of them riding away on the rickshaw with Michael sitting on Job and Buster's laps. Because Justin Bateman is such a, like, or Jason Bateman, sorry, I almost mixed him up with his sister. Uh, Jason Bateman is just, like, a little dude, and it's just kind of, like, cute to see him sitting on his brother's laps. I just thought it was, like, nice. And the narrator finishes by saying, mission accomplished. <laughs> Uh, which is one of another, their favorite... Another, yes, era-appropriate Yeah, and then definitely, um, yeah. I was watching the 30 Rock where Jack and uh, Kenneth take over Tracy's underprivileged baseball team, and when the baseball team is like in complete chaos, they're, of course, standing in front of a Mission Accomplished banner <laughs> with uh, Jack has a cigar in his mouth. I'll give them this. If there's one image from the Bush presidency that probably lives through all of eternity, it'll probably be that picture. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they also put it on a lot of banners on, on 
on um, on Arrested Development simply because the family love banners. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> we then find out what Tobias has been scrapbooking in the On the Next, uh, where he says, here's a picture of your mother pregnant, and here's a whole series of your head starting to crown. Look at you. You're so full of wonder and shock. <laughs> and then he turns and goes, you still do it. And so does he. Boy, you guys really are related. Yeah, because George, um, Michael, and maybe both look <laughs> Totally stupefied with horror. Yes. Uh, in the next episode, George Michael refers to these as really, really rough pictures. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, as Michael is watching the trial of Saddam, we have the narrator, um, the translator, sorry, saying, you've got the wrong guy. The real Saddam has a scar on his head. I'm no scar. I'm no scar. Dot com. Of- <laughs> yes. Uh, which is like a, such a weird kind of like callback for the show to make to basically redub the real trial of Saddam Hussein to make an Oscar dot com <laughs> joke, which has like not Oscar hasn't been a major part of the story in a long time. And I'm sure that no, yeah, n- not at all in season three. I mean, he's in he's in one episode um, in the middle of the season, and then of course he's in the next episode. But that's pretty much it. Like they got rid of Oscar as soon as George Senior was was back with the cabin. And of course, a payoff for the fella at the house who was watching the trial very intently yeah. as well. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, and now there are a couple of cutscenes. <laughs> when Job is explaining what's going to go on when he goes to Iraq, he does ask, <laughs> you know, he he says that people will be doing like they did in ancient times and asking, "How did Jesus do that?" <laughs> <laughs> Which is like such a kind of twist on uh, what would Jesus do? I also um, thought it was a Tony Wonder joke, right? Wasn't his line "How they do that," which was what he yeah, said. Yeah, that's what he calls the audience. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the audience are how they do that. And then a George Senior, we find out he's committed to being in a coma so much that he hasn't even opened his eyes, and he asks Buster, "Is she pretty? Does she have big cans?" And the big cans thing was something that um, Job kind of said about Amy Poehler as well saying that she had big cans. And then, so obviously it's a priority amongst the kind of Bluth men. Although uh, I for... would say, if I were faking being in a coma, I would definitely go with the eyes closed route, personally. <laughs> yes. But You yeah. say that now, but you've never tried it. I have not. Who are you to You judge? called me out. I've never <laughs> faked it. And you told me you wanted to be on this episode because of your experience of being in a coma, so. Yeah, I've lies all around it was all just a lie to get to that podcasting money but you already cut the check so there's no taking back now um yeah so is there anything else that you feel we need to uh discuss about this episode um the only thing i think we didn't really touch on is i really like the moment in the uh alcoholist spa where Lindsay's like well maybe we can take this time to talk and connect to each other and she and lucille both give each other a look and lucille goes diving for her xanax and Lindsay says she'll try to score them some weed so and goes fleeing for the door so i just liked that moment um i actually have a lot of sympathy for Lindsay, and maybe i find the episodes where lucille bullies them to be like genuinely emotionally stirring at times like the whole thing with the elephant brooch that the au pair got or that mm. uh, George Sr. gave her yeah. after he f***ed the au pair. And I just like to see this little moment kind of address that because that's sort of a running vein of family relationships that I've always found interesting on the show. The three generations of women amongst all the men. So I really liked that yeah. scene. And it's kind of, it's it's funny because of course that the, you know, the relationship between 
um, uh, Lucille to Lindsay and then Lindsay to Maybe is kind of the mirror to George Sr. to, you know, Michael and then Michael to George Michael uh, because, you know, Michael is a better parent than Lindsay is to his own child, you know, and and he's kind of trying to be the opposite of of what, um, you know, of what what his of what his father was to him so it's it's kind of kind of interesting to have those two parallels but yeah uh, the fact that they have nothing to talk about <laughs> unless they're not on drugs or getting drunk uh, you know is quite funny um and you know this uh, i mean the, the kind of the payoff to the whole scrapbooking thing is kind of interesting as well because it ends up tying into a story that isn't related to the trial at all because obviously the scrapbooking sting has been set up to try and trap Tobias and to try and get stuff for the trial but I'm guessing by the time he made the scrapbook the CIA West had already called in and said that George Senior was innocent so they no longer needed this elaborate sting. It's really in service of the George Michael and maybe plot line more it's it's kind of like yeah. a, a fun Trojan horse because it rolls on set and you think it's going to be part of the trial storyline but it en- actually ends up being as much a part of that whole Les Cousins Dangereux storyline, shall we say? Yeah. Um, so, well, if there's nothing else to talk about, the next episode is the last episode mm-hmm. that was broadcast on Fox. My guest will be Andrew Schwartz. Uh, and we'll Our also good do a- buddy! Everyone should definitely tune in for that. He's hilarious. And we also will be doing a little bit of a wrap-up uh, on the kind of Series 3 as a whole. And at some point in the future... Um, I may very well return and complete season four um, of the podcast. Uh, but, you know, people have varying opinions on that on season four. So it's a little more difficult to try and find people to talk about uh, those shows. I imagine it'd be uh, more difficult to talk about period, too, because it's so non linear. We have season three to wrap up and, you know, the show on Fox, it, you know, basically finishes. Uh, and then season four is probably for another time. Okay. Um, uh, is there anything that either of you wish to plug before we finish? Yeah, definitely check out our podcast, Stage of Fools. It's available on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. Uh, it's produced by Darren and it's co-hosted by me and Zach. We talk about a TV show that, unlike Arrested Development, is very poorly and incompetently made. And uh, yeah, it's a good time. We make our we have our goofs and our riffs and mm-hmm. our joke em ups. We do occasionally reference Arrested Development on that show as well. Yeah, sometimes mm-hmm. we have to talk about good TV to keep our brains from completely rotting in our skulls. Yes. Uh, I also do a podcast called The Revisionists with previous guest on this show, Brian Flynn, which is a comedy history podcast where we talk about a person or event from history. One person gives a real account of that person or event. One person gives a fake comedic bullshit account. And at the end, we vote to see which becomes the, quote, real history of the world going forward. Okay, well, thanks to both of you for joining me on this episode. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. And otherwise, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Darren. (laughs) 